Welcome to Wabanaki Windows. I'm your host, Donna Loring. Today on our show, you will hear a talk given by Chief Oren Lyons at the University of Maine in Orono. Oren Lyons is a traditional faith keeper of the Turtle Clan and member of the Onondaga Nation Council of Chiefs of Six Nations of the Iroquois Confederacy. He was a featured speaker at the Global Forum for Spiritual Leaders in Moscow and in 1992 was invited to address the United Nations on global warming. He has written a book titled Exiled in the Land of the Free. It was an honor for me to be able to record his talk and to present it in part to you during this hour of Wabanaki Windows. Chief Lyons spoke of community, communities growing their own food, Thanksgiving, racism, war, and peace. Topics quite fitting for this week before Thanksgiving. Please enjoy Chief Oren Lyons. This is a um, radio recording, and uh, Donna Loring is uh, going to put this on a radio show, so i got to be careful what I say. <laughs> My acknowledgement first goes to the native peoples of this part of the world, and uh, I'm now a guest in, in your your area, and that's been our um, protocol to, to thank you for that and to um, to tell you that we come here respectfully. I come here respectfully, and I will you know abide your your laws and rules. And then I want to thank the University of Maine for for this and the Wabanaki Center for inviting me and all of the very good friends that I've met since I've been here and some of the people I've are meeting again after a long time. I was up here somewhere around 1972 I think um, and and I met some of the elders from that time. They come forward in different places and I knew more people than I thought. So that's my first acknowledgement. I've been here for quite some time. It's very unusual for me to be in one place for as long as I have. It's generally one or two days and I'm, I'm moving. But I've been here since last, last week, last Monday. And um, here we are again, a full week. I had the good fortune to spend time with my friends here and, um, this weekend and get a look at your, your beautiful country, very, very old, old fishing grounds, old camping grounds. People lived here, you know, one thing about people, I don't care what century they live in, they always go to the very most beautiful places they find it and uh, always set up camp. In that respect, maybe the beginning of the discussion, I learned from different people from around North America and even further indigenous people in North America Long ago, when there were just 
the native peoples. And it's not to say just, but there was an awful lot of native people here. Um, they had a tremendous respect for the for the earth and for the natural world. And when they moved about and they camped by these favorite spots along the river where they knew the fish were biting or the most beautiful place. There were these places that they just stopped again and again. And there was sort of a game they played. And the game was to spend your day or two along you were at this camp. And then when you left, to erase every every indication that you were there. Carefully erase your presence. And as close to when you arrived as when you're leaving. And the next person or group that came in would come in and they would study the campsite and they would try to guess how long ago or if anybody was here. And they all did that. And you never left a trace of yourself. It was not only um, a game, but it was also a process, a way to respectfully spend your time at this particular place and to leave it the way you found it. Unfortunately, today, the different cultures and the different ways of life, not only do they leave traces of who is here, they leave monuments, large monuments, almost equal to their ego. And they named the place after themselves. You know, all of these places in, in North America, and we'll kind of just stay in the area here, all had names. Every place had a name. Every river had a name. Every town. And they all knew those names. I don't think any of them ever was after a human being. It was after something that happened there or an event or the place itself. So what I'm talking about is the practical approach to being respectful about where you live and how you live. And always in regard to the next one coming. really important. And that would go on even to the next generation coming. And even beyond that. So we're talking about a, a way of life. A way of life that reflected the values of the people who lived there. Pretty common way when you move around the whole world and you talk to the different places and the different people. Always with respect. 
or move up into contemporary times and today's times and some of the situations that we're facing now, uh, cultural devastation of places, uh, lands being exploited and not repaired, resources of water and food, and maybe just a place to be challenged now all over the world. When we talk about those times long ago, there weren't that many people in the world. If you wanted to count them all, there were just few compared to what's here today. Compared to what's here today, there are very few. Still many. So today, we have 6.7 billion people in the world. In 1950, we had 2.5 billion. 59 years ago, we've more than doubled the population in 59 years. And it's not very sustainable. In fact, it isn't sustainable. So, that's an issue, the human population. And it's an issue internationally, with the natural world in particular, because there's very little defense there. And so in today's times, as we count 6.7 billion, probably eight by the time we're here today, probably very soon, nine, 6.9, because it's exploding. It's building exponentially. It's compounding. It is not just growing, it's compounding. And it's accelerating faster and faster. And so as we think about this, and then as we maybe take a census, you know, this about, about to take a census, I hear, on the human population. Well, you know, taking a census of how many gorillas are left in the world is very easy now, because you can count how many in the hundreds. Or how many tigers? You can count them. Or how many elephants? Talking about the natural world. You can take a census there and you'll find that there are fewer and fewer and fewer. There used to be a balance of all of that. And the balance supported everyone. We lived with them, we worked with them, they shared themselves with us. We had ceremonies of thanksgiving for them. You just didn't take something. You paid respect. There was a, a way to do things. Always respectful. A life is a life, whether it's a tree, whether it's a mountain, a moose, or a mouse, it's still a life. 
And they work collectively, these lives, for the good of everybody, for the good of all of us. So now we're coming to that point where we can count mostly human beings. And that is at the expense of everything else. So we come to a great imbalance, a time of imbalance in this <coughs> world that we live in. And the imbalance is too many human beings. And depending on where and who you're talking to, it becomes a difficult subject because it becomes a political subject or it becomes a religious subject. But in the natural world, it becomes a subject of life and death, regardless <coughs> of your politics or regardless of your religion or anything else, because there's a balance factor here. Some of the things that we know, we being indigenous people, not only us, many people know. First of all, there's no mercy in nature. Nature has no mercy whatsoever. Does have a lot of rule, does have a lot of law. And that's what we learn. We learn that law and respect that law. We live within that law. And living within that law gives you a long life and gives your children life and it just goes on one big cycle after the other. Somewhere along the line, I don't remember where, I was questioned one time in kind of a meeting like this. Well, Chief, what's your bottom line? That made me set up. Because <coughs> I didn't know. That is a question. I said, what is my bottom line? And I told the person who asked the question, you know, I said, I'm going to have to study that. I can't answer you because I don't know. What is my bottom line? So I thought about it, and I came, first of all, to understanding what is a bottom line? Well, what is that? And of course, all of us in this world that we live in today, we know what that bottom line is. It's the last line on profit or loss. It's a monetary discussion. He was putting a monetary discussion in spectrum of life. Well, I guess we, we live in that. But I said, well, wait a minute. So that's the bottom line. Okay. Well, then what is my bottom line? And then I said, well, you know, being who I am, man and dog and nation, living within the community I live in, and living the cycle of, of life that we live in from one ceremony, Thanksgiving ceremony, to the next, round the lunar clock. I said, I don't have a bottom line. I live in a circle. No bottom line. No end. It took me a little while to figure it out, you know, because it was a good question. Because I've been spending a lot of time in my brother's boat, and I know I know a lot about his boat and all his rules. So no, I said, we don't have a bottom line because we live in a circle, cycle of life. Very powerful cycles of regeneration. It's regeneration, it regenerates life. Spring, summer, fall, winter, spring, summer, fall, winter. You know, 
You wait in the spring for the ducks and the geese because you're so skinny from eating rabbits all winter you got no fat left. And just about the time when you, you don't know whether you're going to survive or not, here's spring. And here comes some fat, juicy geese and ducks full of grease. And we're right into that. And we start again. And the leeks and the wild onions and all the things that grow that we live can't wait for the greens. Greens are a great power. Lift you right up. So it's a cycle. There's no bottom line. But in today's times, that's about all you hear about is the bottom line. Serious discussions going on right now in the Congress and the Senate about the health care. Bottom line. What does it cost? Who's paying? Who isn't paying? Pretty confusing discourse going on out there. That's the bottom line. But it's an economic line. Important to be sure. Important to be sure. Can't discount it because that's just about the way we all live today. Nevertheless, the earth remains the same because we choose to do a different lifestyle, because we choose to do what we're doing, does not change the earth at all. We can scar it up, we can use this, we can use that, and maybe at the end of this discussion, we do, our, do away with ourselves as a species. We just do away with ourselves. That's well within the capability of our hands. Maybe that's what's going to happen. I remember as a little boy, I used to get scared when people would talk about the end of the world. I kept hearing about the end of the world. Oh, that's a scary thought for a little kid, you know. I'd sit there thinking, what's that? What's that like? My kid brother, who was just, we were so close together, we are almost like twins, Lee boy, he knew that scared me. And he would come next to me and say, Hey, Sonny. I said, What? He said, End of the world's coming. And I would get scared. And he, I would go running out trying to find my mother and say, End of the world. She says, Leave boy, leave him alone. But it used to scare me. Because it had this impending disaster I couldn't even visualize. And then as I grew older, I said, well, the world's not going to end at all. It has its own cycle. And then as I became more comprehensive of what the situation was, I said, well, maybe we're going to end as a species, but that certainly isn't going to end the world at all. And if we do, in fact, take ourselves to that position, what will happen in the world? Well, you know what? It's going to get green again. It's going to clean all the water. 
everything that used to be will be back again because it knows how that's what it does and its biggest problem which right now is us will be gone and so what will it do? It'll re-energize itself. It'll reconstitute itself because it has this powerful, very powerful law of regeneration. It knows how to do that. That's why we call it our mother. It knows how to keep us alive. And so, that's the way it'll be. And the reason why it can be that way and we can't do it that way is because the world has all the time in the world. It's got all the time in the world. That's a long time. And we, we have these short runs. We got the short stint of while we're here. You know, you're lucky. You'll, you'll make the full generation anywhere from 80 on. Many of us don't, but it's a general, that's about where we're at. You get to my age and you're on a short, very, very short end of the stick. And um, what happens there is you start to get busy trying to finish your work or finish up stuff and get things done. Don't want to leave a mess take care of things, you know. It's like getting the wood ready for winter. But you're not getting it ready for yourself, you're getting it ready for your family. You're getting it ready for your children, you're getting it ready for the next generation. That's what you're working for. That's what you're working on. And everybody does that. I mean, that doesn't belong to Indians, it doesn't belong to black people in Africa or they all do it, we all do it, we all have that understanding. Except maybe corporation presidents. They're not thinking that way. They're not thinking that way at all. But it seems to me that's who's in charge these days. So, here we are. And, um, here you are in this room. We got a little while together. Now, just to clear any misconceptions, people say, oh, let's go hear that old man, he knows a lot. Well, I know some stuff, but really, I'm a runner for the Confederacy. I'm a runner for the Haudenosaunee, Six Nations, Iroquois. I'm a runner for the Onondaga Nation. I'm a runner for the chiefs. I carry their message. I go hear stuff. I bring back news. I travel because I speak the English language very well. I speak it very well. I understand it very well. But not much more. And so that's my instruction. Well, you go. You can talk their language. You go. Tell them what we said. So you don't want to get the idea that I'm some kind of a wise man. I'm just a runner. But in the course of a life, you'd be surprised what you pick up. 
you'd be surprised what you learn. And in fact, you do turn to the old people. You do turn to them because when there's times are hard, they know. You know, they're always there. They're always there waiting for you to ask a question. Most of the time you don't ask the question until you're almost flat on your back and then you say, well, I better go see grandpa or grandma. You try to tough it out yourself. Instead of, as a kid going over there, they're willing to start teaching you as soon as you sit there. As soon as you come, they'll teach. Always sit there. I remember one of my young, I don't know what to call him, because he's, I think he surpassed surpassed me in my capacities, a John Mohawk, <clears throat> who I always call the resident intellect of Iroquois, a very smart guy, very brilliant. He could analyze things, and sometimes he'd talk about things, and you're trying to understand what he said, and he's already ten sentences ahead of you. You just can't catch up to him, you know. He's, John was a guy. He was also a farmer. John planted. He planted a lot of corn. You know how he got it from his father. Could sing songs too. Could sing, sing the songs we needed to in the longhouse. He's brilliant. He was really a good companion. Uh, anyway, John. He analyzed things. He would be able to say, well, you know, this happened before, and this is what we did then, and he would know. And he took the time to go to the elders. So now he was at the university, I was a professor at the University of Buffalo, and John was my student. In fact, it was John Mohawk and Barry White and, and his wife. About four of these people were just dogged me down to, to where I could corner me up and say, you gotta come out and you gotta start American Indian Studies Department at the University of Buffalo. And I said, well, that's not what I do. I said, I'm hires, I got a lot of work to do. And I'm at the council, I got that work. And come on, you can do it. You got the credentials. We need it. They just dogged me till they cornered me up till I had to go. So once I went, I stayed there. It was 1971. And I retired last year. But it was John. So now I'm the professor, and John is doing his master's. And he says, you know what I want to do my master's in? I said, no, I have no idea, John. What do you think? He says, you know, he says, we've lost, or we don't know where this Indian potato went. We had a potato, an Indian potato that would last in the ground for four years. You could put it in the ground, it would be there. It wouldn't rot. It was a small, hardy potato. And we don't know where that is. He says, in the beans, we used to, we used to grow 15, 20 different kind of beans. He says, where are they? And he would start talking about the things that we didn't have anymore, the varieties of food. I said, John, what are you getting at? Well, that's going to be my master's course. He says, I'm going to find these. 
I said, well, that's pretty good. And he's going to make a garden. He said, I'm going to make a community garden like we used to make. Okay, John. I said, that's a good idea. Oh, I said, but you know, you'll have to wait till after harvest for your grade. <laughs> if you're just joining us, welcome to Wabanaki Windows. This is Donna Loring, your host, and you are listening to Chief Orrin Lyons of the Onondaga Nation. It's all right. He said, it's a bargain. So off he went. And he went to all the Six Nation Reserves, and he visited old folks here and there. And you know, and he found beans. He found old couples, some of them living yet, yet in, a, in a, the old uh, log houses. Log houses, you know, they're 400, 400, 500 years old. He's still living there. And outside in the corner by the doorway is growing these beans. And they're keeping the beans alive for seed, waiting for somebody somewhere along the line come back and ask for them. And lo and behold, here comes John. Know anything about beans? Sit right down. And so John found these things. He was all over the place. And you know where he found the potato, or as close as he could get to this Indian potato? He found it in Cooperstown, New York, at the farmer's exhibit there. And they had, they had a 17th, 18th century farm. And they had, they had some of these old things, he found it. So we had it, well, it was our white brother that had it. That's where he found it. Because we didn't, we didn't have it. And then he did build a garden. And he's from uh, Cataraugus, Seneca. And he built a garden. He got all these young people and they built this community garden. And you know, they had so much that came out of that garden, they couldn't keep up with it. And they were driving around from one nation to the next and any of our doings, any of our meetings, any of our ceremonies, any of that, there they'd show up and they would have a whole pile of food and they would leave it. These were the young people. And this was John's inspiration. So when I say, and he had a great father, his father was one of the leaders in the longhouse tradition. So that's where he learned the songs and of course he would go to the ceremonies. So he knew all that, plus he was about the smartest guy I ever saw. He <clears throat> could remember things where I couldn't. So we depend on John. We depend on him for a lot of things. And he's the one that took over Akwesasne notes during the 70s and he made that, he made that a very strong paper. He came to me one day, he says, I have an offer. I don't know what to do. I said, well, what is it? He says, well, there's a law firm that wants to hire me. There's a lot of money. He said, they want to hire me, and they're in Washington, D.C. And they want me to be part of their board. 
On the other hand, he says, we're having a lot of trouble these days. And he's talking about those 70s and 60s and where we a lot of Indian action, as you remember. Some of us remember that. And he said, well, he said, I also got the offer to do Akrisasani notes. And he says, it's a hard choice because if I go to Akrisasani notes, I'm going to be living in the woods there, and uh, we'll be living hand to mouth, and I don't think there's anything going to be paid, but we'll have to make generate our own funds. He says, on the other hand, I'm being offered a very lucrative arrangement. I said, John, I said, you asked me um, to make a decision for you, and I said, I can't do that, but I can tell you this. John, you're going to be a lot more helpful to us at Aquisasa Notes than you will be at that. I can tell you that. Good enough, he said. And John went and took that Aquisasa Notes and made it a real amazing paper. Well, John, and we got other, other people like that, but I just him up as an example of what our people are and how capable they are and they're all amongst us here they're young people and unless you help them unless you help direct them and hopefully somebody's there to give them direction at crucial times in their life you know that's where the old people come from that's where the community comes from because they're available they're standing there waiting just like that couple with the beans waiting for somebody to come and ask. It's like that around the world. We're not the only ones all over. Same thing. So each generation then is responsible for itself. I mean, you can't live your daughter's or your son's life as much as we'd like to and as much as we try sometimes. No, they have to, they have to learn themselves and have to bear whatever they do. But if it was possible, you know, my, most of us, including myself, would gladly do something for them that they, but we can't. So what's the best thing that we can do then is we can give them good direction. Good direction, that's what we can do. That's what we're there for. And safe haven, a little protection out of the wind if things don't go right. There you are. That's what you're there for. And those of us who have children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren know that that never stops. You, you, they never catch up to you. And you're always the elder. Maybe way down the road you might need their help and they'll come help you. If you're there, they're there. So our societies, indigenous societies, really built on that style of life. They had large extended families. We called them clans. That was our identity. That's how we lived. That's who we were. And if they ask me, we are here now and then, well then, who are you? And I always use the word we, I never say me. I learned that long ago. Never use me or I. 
It's always we. And I'd answer, I said, we are the ones who give thanks to the earth. That's our mission, that's what we do, and we do it good. We know how. And everywhere I go in indigenous countries, I see these ceremonies and I know what they're doing. Whether their language is different, doesn't matter. I know what they're doing. And your family, right away, they move you right in, you sit right there. And your participation, your presence. You learn these things, you know, by little incidents. You learn something just by little chances, so forth. I remember talking to one of my friends. We were going to, uh, I forget, some kind of a, a meeting at Onondaga. And we were young people, we were young men at that time, I was a very young man. And one of my friends coming down the road, and I said, uh, you're gonna go, you're gonna go to this meeting tomorrow. I said, you're gonna, uh, you're gonna say anything, you know, you're gonna be at that meeting, say anything. He says, no, he says, I'm not, I'm not going to say anything, but I'm going, he says. I'm going. And I said, what are you going to do? He says, I'm going to make the crowd bigger. You know, I thought about that. I don't know how many times during my life those words come back to me. I'm going to make the crowd bigger. And maybe that's all you can do at that moment. And that's what he was going to do. It was a big mission, because if everybody didn't think that way, there would be no crowd. So you need it. Your presence is needed. You don't have to be speaking. You don't have to be, you know, making a great speech or anything, but you're there. And by your presence, you're saying, I'm here. I'm going to make the crowd bigger. I forget that. I'm passing that on to you. You know, we don't have much time here, but that's something to think about. When people think, well, I don't I don't have much to say. Well, maybe not, but if you're there, it makes everybody feel better. So it would be the same at this meeting here and there were six people or ten people here. Well, all right, we deal with that. But look, we got a good crew here. They make the crowd bigger. It's helpful to all of us. Makes everybody feel better. So, I know sometimes it's easier just to say, well, I think I'll stay home. I don't want to go out and get in there and do all that again, but think about that. Think about your duty. Think about what you can do. And maybe that's exactly what you can do, is put your coat on, go over there, and make the crowd bigger. So these kinds of things are lessons you learn over a period of time. And age, there's no way that you're going to learn something without experience. When they said that Obama was going to be President of the United States, I said, well, at the very best, 
He has only 46 years of experience, at the very best. He's smart, which he is. He's dedicated, which he is. Good principles, which he does. But still, he's only got 46 years. And you know, when you look in a nation, and you look at those 46-year-olds, they're pretty bullheaded. They got a lot of energy, and they run things at home. But they're not the leaders. Leaders are older. And here we have. Okay, so he needs a lot of help. He needs a lot of support. He needs some direction. Now that's how you think. You have to know what each age does, you know. You have to know what is your work. We were out in Montana, elders meeting, you mentioned, traditional circle of elders and youth. And I took my kids out there. Boy, nephews, good camping trip. They were young, just anxious to go and see. And you know, it is when the kids are running about in a camp or in a meeting like that, you think they're not listening. You think they're not hearing stuff, but you'd be surprised what they're picking up and how big their ears are, you know. They're listening. You just don't think so. But they're there. Now we're talking to this old man, Northern Cheyenne leader, spiritual leader, traditional man, Austin, two moons. And he says, to us one time, talking about this, what are the age groups? He says, well, he says, you know, he's explaining their Sundance to me. This poll, this poll, he says, that's when you're born to when you're 20, he says, everybody's in there as kids. They're all children. That poll, that poll, that's the next generation or the next step up, he says, they're still young, but they may even have children, but they're still learning. You know, and on he went. Anyway, when uh, my son had his first baby, and he married a young girl, he was younger than he was. They were both young, nah, to have a baby. So I'm standing there, looking at this 10-pound boy, 24 inches long. I said, geez. And he says, boys, that's a close call. And I said, what are you talking about? Oh man, he says, remember? He says, remember what Two Moon said? He said, now my birthday is here, and Monty's birthday is here, young boy is just born, and it's born like, um, his birthday was January 27th, and Monty's birthday was March or April 15th. And he says, you know, Dad, he says, we're almost all children at the same time. My wife, myself, and my son, he's all kids, born at the same time, 
He said, but he just got to be 21. He said, boy, that's a close call. <laughs> and I had no idea that he remembered that and that he was even there when he was talking. I didn't know that. I forgot all about it. But there he was. He soaked it up. He remembered it. He was thinking about it. So these children, you think they're not listening. Yeah, yeah, they are. And then all of us remember when in the old days we'd be all listening right around the pipe hole from the ceiling, listening to what they're talking about downstairs, you know. It's quiet up there listening. Yeah, kids know. So they hear everything, so keep that in mind, you know. You're bringing them up. What I'm talking about now is simple life, everyday life that we know. But that's basically what we do. We live everyday life, every day. I mean, every day is, is uh, what we have, actually. And um, my philosophy now, I have philosophy finally, and it's uh, get the best out of the day. That's my philosophy. Well, you get that way anyway, the older you get, because it's one day at a time anyway. So <laughs> you become more aware of that, you know. So you get the best out of the day. And if you do that every day, then you're not waiting for some major event, you know, that you save money for and then finally have it and then it goes away and that's it. No, if you learn how to get the best out of the day, then, then you're really living a, a good life. And you're really absorbing what happens because so many things happen in one day. And then our instruction, of course, is to, when you wake up, is to give thanks for waking up. No guarantee you're going to wake up. So now here you are. It's okay. That's the first Thanksgiving. And the last one at night is for the day itself and all that happened. So it's a, a way, a way of respect and a way of... of um, um, broadening your enjoyment, you know. I think that's why we like stories so much because they're instructive and uh, some good storytellers. And I don't think you get better storytellers than Indians. They're really good storytellers. They know how. They know how. And at the end of it, there's always a lesson. They never tell a story without some point. Maybe take them a long time to get there. But they get there and you remember it. So, today, our children aren't listening. They're not learning from us and our stories. There's a television set going. Or there's a computer going. Or there's a tweeter going. Somebody else is teaching them. Somebody else has got their hands on Unless you're aware. And then you wonder why they do something, you know, and you don't understand it. Well, not paying close enough attention. It's hands-on, this business of raising children. It's hands-on, as you all know. The closer attention, the better off they are. The more disciplined, the better off they are. You know, it's just a problem for them if they're not taught early enough, they get into trouble.
So the large family then, the clans that we had and have, you know, I've been sitting for the Turtle Clan for since 1965. It's a long time. It's over 40 years of sitting on a council. And uh, big family, the Turtle's a big family. And they borrowed me. They borrowed me from the wolf. Because I'm a wolf. It's my clan is a wolf. But I borrowed over to the turtles, and I've been sitting there all these years. It's temporary, they told me. <laughs> now my kid brother is sitting in a principal position. Anyway, in this large family, we have friends and we have support. We have support in a community, a large extended community, and that community extends to the animal world, and that extends to the plant world. That community is big. It just keeps going out and out and out, you know, and the more you learn about your community, the better, and how you relate to one another, what you do, how you, how you fit and are productive in what you do. You have to learn about your neighbors and so forth. And we did. Indigenous people really knew. They could tell, you know, just, they knew things. It's old people, they knew things. And watching, watching a cornfield with the old man. Oh, look, he says, he says, there's, there's the medicine corn. Looking at the big cornfield, you know, <laughs> rows and rows of corn, and uh, he says, "Oh, there's the medicine corn." I said, "Where? <laughs> what, are you, what are you looking at?" He said, "See that bird? We were there as a bird." He said, "That bird only lands on the medicine corn, so we have to go find that one." Keep track of that, he says, because that's the one in the field. That's the only one that knows that, that bird. Well, I wouldn't. I didn't know that. I'm just lucky to be standing to him by this man when he said that. He said that like everybody should know that. And I guess at one time everybody did. But not anymore. Well, corn comes in a can now. You know, everything comes in a can, comes in a package, comes wrapped up. So you lose track, you lose track of what keeps you alive, and you lose respect in the meantime, or you just don't have any knowledge whatsoever about it. So, I guess what I'm saying is kind of rambling around here. I'm not talking much about international stuff, am I? I'm just talking more about home and more about what we know about, what we have to deal with every day, and just kind of reminding ourselves of uh, how much and how important it is. Sometimes we 
oh, they're always doing these big things, and going to these big places. And, well, you know, after you've been to these big places and big things, you find out they're pretty hollow sometimes. And you get over there long enough, you find out they don't know what the hell they're talking about. <laughs> or if they are, you don't know what the hell they're talking about. <laughs> So it's important, I'm going to talk about community now, community being our family and the extended family, and that's what brings us to the issue of, uh, of global warming. And now that's a very serious issue. And I've been at this business for a while now, and I'm spending a lot of time on it, and as a matter of fact, um, I met one of your scientists here, Paul, and uh, and as a matter of fact, the president, Mr. Kennedy, another scientist, CO2 specialist, can you imagine? And I talked to him about our meetings that we're holding internationally. And I said, you guys should come. We need you. So we're thinking about that. And then I'm thinking, gee, this University of Maine is a pretty good place. There's a lot of stuff going on here. I had no idea about, you know, I said, you know, because Maine's kind of way over here, you know, you gotta, you gotta make up your mind to go to Maine, you know, it's not. <laughs> so I said, well, so now, you know, and then I find my, my friends, Penobscot, Passamaquoddy's, Malisutes, Micmacs, I know these people. Long ago, I said, gee, gotta get back. So I'm going home when I'm from here and I'm going to talk to the chiefs and I'm going to tell them, look guys, we've got to make, make our path better going up this way, we've got to talk to them more. All doing the same thing. And then they got a good place up there called the Wabanaki Center. And that's, a, that's a, another confederation. And we know that confederation. We know that one. And we got wampum belts, old ones. We got wampum belts between the two of us. I had to remind them. We have wampum belts with Anishinaabe. We got wampum belts with Cherokees, Choctaw, even Seminole. Old time, long ago. You know, we're related. We're related, Indian nations. Really related close. Languages are close, customs we know. And then when you really go to, say, maybe the West Coast Indians who are really different, then you learn from them. And they're related all up and down the coast. So that's how we operate. That's how we are. And then our brothers and our sisters, when they came from the water, across the water, we're related. We're related close. And we have to get back to that. And I think that one of the missions that I talk about now is how we have to do away with this idea of racism. We just don't have time for it anymore. It's a luxury we have to do without. It's just like war. War is what we like to do. But things are getting to the point where, no, you don't want to do that. It's taking too much energy, it's taking too much money. Get back to the community, peaceful coexistence 
living together, working together, doing the best you can, supporting one another. That's what we used to do. We'd have runners come and go, Glad, always glad to see a visitor. Sometimes he'd bring in news, you know. We always had a house, you know. There was always a place for them to, to get a rest, and eat, and calm down. And maybe in a day or two, then we'll hear the message. And then they tell us, and everybody will sit and listen. Those people were our messengers. Well, all of that. We have to be aware now in this time of, of the technology that seems to have grabbed our young people. They're living in a different age than us, and they're operating in a whole different way than we are. Now, even as a professor, I still don't have a computer. I use this old style, write, write it. And even older was just remembering what they said, write nothing. I remember. And now we have a whole way of communicating and I see people computing, you know, in the same house, using the phone or using it. <laughs> Upstairs. <laughs> You know, could just come down and say something. No, I'm be here. <laughs> That's really different from us, you know. But there it is. It's a reality. You have to watch. Watch what's in that machine. And who's in charge? <clears throat> Had to watch. This is WERU and Wabanaki Windows. Thank you for joining us. If you would like to hear Chief Lyon's entire talk, please go to WERU.org. I am your host, Donna Loring, and I would like to thank our engineer, Amy Brown, and hope you tune in again on December 15th for another episode of Wabanaki Windows.